Please have that passage open in front of you, Matthew 19. And uh, we began to look at this last Lord's Day morning, and we're continuing this morning, looking at verses 7 to 9. And friends, really, as a pastor, my primary role is to glorify God and to preach and teach the Word of God. And it's my prayer that as the Lord works for his word, that we will be a church, a people, that really does believe in the Bible as the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. To see that as the Bible speaks, we are to hear, to respond, to submit, and to obey it. And so when difficult issues arise, our go-to must always be what does the word say? What does the word say on this matter? And that's true for salvation, what it means to know God and to be right with him through the Lord Jesus. And it's true also for this whole matter of marriage and divorce. God speaks with the same authority on this matter as he does any other. And that's important for us to remember, especially when there are so many different views and voices in the world on these things. And just really on relationships in general, there's just so much confusion, so much that is there. And those attitudes can very easily sweep into the church along with the desire to be more acceptable to the world and to modify, to bring ourselves in line with what the world wants rather than what the Word says. And when we go down that path, it isn't long before there is a total moving away from the Word of God. And so here at PBC, we believe that God speaks in His Word, and when He does, we listen. And we're called to submit to the authority of the Word willingly and lovingly and eagerly and joyfully and knowing that in obedience there is great blessing. And so we began to look at this last time and we said that God defines marriage. God defines marriage. Now, we said, didn't we, that sadly in our day there are few who have been untouched by the agony of divorce. And uh, I shared it's something that I've experienced in my own family situation. And some of you have been deeply hurt. Some of you here this morning, some of you carry very deep wounds. But as we said and continue to say, the Lord is able to bind up the brokenhearted. And so in all things, we must run to him. And God's definition of marriage as given in his word is unchanging. It stands Marriage defined by God, a covenant under God, and marriage is designed to be that demonstration to the world of Christ's covenant with his people, a depiction of Christ's love for his church. And in this passage, the Lord Jesus reaffirms this clear foundation. And uh, we looked last time when we saw how he's beginning a new phase in his earthly ministry as he heads ultimately to Jerusalem and to the cross. And so he's crossed into an area called the beyond, into prayer, and there are great multitudes with him. And he continues teaching concerning the kingdom, how to know God, how to be right, trusting him, and he's healing as well, and all of these things to show that he is Messiah. And then his enemies, who are never far away, they confront him. And they come to him and ask him this question about divorce. And we looked at that in great detail. And we saw that they're not genuine, but they want to discredit the Lord Jesus. 
They want to draw him into a trap. They want to discredit his favor with the people. And ultimately, they want to destroy him. And we looked at why that was the case. And so they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And in the most profound and wise and wonderful way, Jesus doesn't evade the issue, but he confronts them head on with the truth of the word. And he just takes them right back to God's original design for marriage. He brings the revelation of God to bear and instantly he takes the matter above opinions to what God says and the ideal that God has set in place. And so Jesus gives in his response these four reasons why divorce was not part of God's original design, that it was against the created order, one man, one woman. Those deep bonds of togetherness, when God brought one man and one woman together, they are united in a very glorious way. They're one flesh. God sees the two as one. They have given themselves to each other in every way. Therefore, what God has joined together should not be separated. And you can go through the Old Testament and you can see the way that God affirms that time and time and time again, all the way through to Malachi 2.16, where God reiterates what he has set in place in Genesis. And he says, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. And so that standard is what the Lord affirms. God desires marriage to be a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man, one woman, the binding covenant of a lifelong pledge of companionship togetherness before him. That's the biblical foundation and design. But then they come back to him with another question. And we see that not only does God define marriage, but then God regulates divorce. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, Jesus had affirmed the teaching of Scripture. He had gone back to the foundations, but the Pharisees, they weren't interested in that. They didn't want to know really what the scriptures actually said. You see, they've been using the scriptures to fulfill their own desires and own agendas. And so they didn't really want to know the truth. They didn't know what God had designed. They were all about themselves, their own agenda. They wanted to twist things to justify their actions and yet still appear to be keeping the law and in favor with God. They wanted to accommodate their lust, permit their divorces, their adulteries, and also to carry the favor with the people, to make it appealing in that way. And so they come back to Jesus and they try again to discredit Jesus and to make him lose favor with the people. And so they do it this time by trying to set the Lord Jesus against Moses. Now the people really revered Moses. They really respected Moses. And so to think that Christ would be against Moses, they felt that that would really cause an issue for the Lord Jesus. And so it's a loaded question. And they say, if what you say is true, why did Moses command divorce? Now, instantly, friends, you need to know that the question is wrong. Because Moses did not command divorce. So even in the question, the trap has been set. It is their spin on things. And so the first thing we need to do is really to look at what Moses did say. 
And so I'd like you to turn back in God's word, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is where this question comes from. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verses 1 to 4. And so it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And just stop there for a minute. What is happening here is this. A man marries a woman and he does not like her. Okay, it comes a point where she can't find favor in his eyes and because of some indecency. And so the man writes a certificate of divorce, he sends her out and she leaves because she is legally divorced. And then we're told that she will go on to become another man's wife. But notice that in those verses, there is no comment on whether what is done is right or wrong. It's just a statement of the situation. And then it carries on. If the latter husband detests her, writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance." So what's happening there? Well, the woman marries again. And the text says then that if the second husband divorces her and sends her out, or if the second husband dies, the Bible says that the first husband cannot then think, oh, well, I I miss her and I want to remarry and go back to her. He cannot remarry her because that would be sin. So that's what Moses is dealing with in this passage. That's the command. It is not primarily about divorce. It is about the conditions of remarriage. So the question is based on a misinterpretation of Scripture. Now, the Jewish rabbis interpreted this passage as a command to divorce. And they argued that when the husband found indecency in his wife, he was commanded to divorce her. But that's not what it says in the text. The whole premise of the question is wrong. Moses did not command divorce. The point of their attack is based on a deliberate twisting of what the Bible says. And so the passage is not condoning divorce, it is regulating remarriage. Now there are other places in the Old Testament which mention divorce. You can look through Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 21. But like here in Deuteronomy 24, they don't command it They don't condone it, they comment that it exists. Now in this passage, in Deuteronomy 24, there is a cause for divorce that is mentioned. He has found some uncleanness in her. Now last time we mentioned, didn't we, about the dominant tradition of the rabbis at the time of the Lord Jesus said that that pretty much covered anything really, that the man who wanted to divorce could find. Anything that he could argue was indecent or unclean, even something as trivial as the wife letting her hair down in a way that he didn't like. Now, to understand what this means, we have to see it in its context. We must always put Scripture with Scripture to understand and see what is happening. Now, in the previous chapter in Deuteronomy... There has been instruction given about making sure that the camp was kept holy and clean, 
particularly in terms of making sure that human waste was buried. So those are the instructions. And the same word for uncleanness is used in the first verse of Deuteronomy 24. And it says that the, if the husband found in his wife some indecency, something vile, something shameful, something improper, something embarrassing. Now it cannot refer to adultery because adultery resulted in death at this point. So it's something embarrassing, something shameful, something vile has happened and her husband divorces her. But in doing so, these verses say that he makes her an adulteress. Now the Lord Jesus says the same in Matthew 5. He says, if you divorce your wife for anything less than adultery or fornication, you make her an adulteress. And that's why the text then says that the first husband can't go back and remarry her because the mess created means that it's just opened up a whole load of adultery. And so Deuteronomy 24 is not commanding divorce, it is commanding not to remarry an illegitimately divorced person. God is protecting marriage there. And he's saying you can't just divorce your wife for any reason because it leads to adultery being committed in all that follows. And so if you turn back then into Matthew 19, you see that the question is on the wrong premise. How does the Lord Jesus handle it? How does he respond? Well, he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, for from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Whoever marries her is divorced, commits adultery. And so Jesus says, look, Moses did not command it, but because of the hardness of their hearts, permitted divorce in very specific circumstances. He did not permit it for any reason, as you say, just because you want to change or you find someone better. It was only permitted for adultery. And these permissions of divorce, they weren't God's design. Divorce is always the result of sin. But wherever the permission to divorce was given by Moses, it certainly wasn't in the passage that the Pharisees were using. But it's there. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a discussion about illegitimate divorce in Deuteronomy 24. And so the point is, the teaching of the Old Testament, unlike the teaching of the rabbis and the Pharisees, was that there was no divorce for anything less than adultery. And so Jesus affirms the teaching of the Old Testament. Now, the penalty for adultery at the beginning of the Old Testament was death. But there was a transition from the death penalty to divorce, such is the graciousness of God, that God in his tolerance spared life and permitted divorce. But if marriage could only be severed by adultery through death, then it is clear that God would only allow marriage to be severed by divorce in the case of adultery. And even then, only where there was hardness of heart. And so only where there was an irreconcilable problem, one partner in a marriage who is in an adulterous relationship, who will not end it, who will not hear any calls for repentance, where there's no reconciliation, where there's no prospect of restoration, but just a hardened pursuit of what is wrong. And God may be gracious to the one in sin, but where that hard heart is not softened, Moses permitted divorce for the innocent party. It wasn't commanded, it wasn't promoted, it was permitted. 
It was a concession on account of sin to make life more bearable for the one sinned against. You know, a consequence of sin, but not God's original design and purpose for marriage as laid down at creation before the fall. And so Jesus says, he says, I say to you, the only grounds of divorce is sexual immorality, adultery. Now, there are examples of this in the Old Testament. Ezra 10. In Ezra 10, in that passage, the people of God say that they are making a covenant with God to divorce their wives. Now, why are they doing that? Well, they had married pagans. And God had forbidden them to do this, and yet they'd entered into these mixed marriages and they'd become adulterers. They'd abandoned God's commandments, and the women that they'd married were engaged in immorality during the pagan Baal worship. And so they said that they would divorce their wives, and Ezra makes the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear to do this. And so it's a passage that suggests legitimate divorce due to adultery. But there's a, another more significant picture on this, and it's in Isaiah 50. And the Lord is confronting a wayward, disobedient, hard-hearted, sinning people. And he speaks to them using the image of him as their husband, Israel as his wife. And he says to them in Isaiah 50 verse 1, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? In other words, he's saying, how dare you join yourselves to idols? How dare you commit spiritual adultery? How dare you abandon me and the worship of the true God? What gives you the right to do that? Have I divorced you? And he had not. And over 700 years, God calls to Israel for repentance all the time, urging them to end things with their idols, to end their spiritual adultery. And then in Jeremiah 3.8, he says... Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. That's the analogy that he uses. Divorce on the grounds of persistent, hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery. And so the only permitted basis of divorce in the Old Testament was that continued, persistent, unresolvable adultery. And even in that example of what the Lord does, he demonstrates that patience and uses the analogy of divorce to picture his dealings with Israel at that time. Now, the wonderful thing is that later in Jeremiah, God speaks of making a new covenant. And he says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in that a day that I took them by the hand to lead them from Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and so on. And so the Lord Jesus, he responds to the Pharisees by restating God's intention for marriage, that the original design was not for divorce, but in his graciousness, those sin ruins, where there was persistent, hard-hearted, irreconcilable adultery, God permitted divorce. It is a concession to a sinful world. 
And then verse 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her is divorced commits adultery. You know, some try to make a loophole in the term sexual immorality, but really it's the word for any kind of unlawful, shameful sexual activity that should have resulted in death in Old Testament terms. Only then is divorce permitted. Jesus said the same in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it again here. He affirms God's standard. And friends, please see that Jesus does not say that divorce is certain in those circumstances. Or required where there is adultery, only that is permitted. The Pharisees, they were always searching for loopholes. They were searching for reasons to end divorce. But the Lord Jesus says that the believer shouldn't be looking for reasons to divorce. Divorce is permissible when there is adultery, but because of the gospel, it is not inevitable. And so remember, this teaching comes following the Lord's teaching on extravagant forgiveness. Forgiveness only possible if a person is in Christ and where there is repentance. Now, this is also taught, we see further on in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me just share with you from there for a little while. 1 Corinthians 7. Now, in that passage, Paul is speaking of the principles of marriage, and he affirms the teaching of the Lord There's a consistency across the Scriptures. And he begins by saying that marriage is to be permanent, the exception for divorce being adultery. And basically he says, if you decide to leave for any other reason, you should either go back, you should stay single the rest of your life, but you cannot remarry because that would be adultery. But there is another grounds for divorce which is not covered prior to 1 Corinthians 7, which in the purposes of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is addressed, and it's what many call abandonment. You know, what if a person is converted when they're already married? You become a Christian, your husband and wife is not. And if they want to remain, even though you become a Christian, then of course you don't divorce, you stay together. Your marriage covenant is before God. You know, some say, well, now I'm a Christian and I've got an unbelieving spouse and we're unequally yoked and so I want to divorce and I want to be with a Christian. But Paul says, no, your marriage covenant stands. And in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 13, it says, A woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And so if you've been saved and you have an unbelieving partner, the marriage covenant before God still stands. But then he says, verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7, If the unbeliever departs, that word literally means divorces, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So if the unbelieving partner pursues a divorce, if you have given them no cause apart from your conversion, then the believing spouse is not bound to the marriage. The bond to that individual has been severed just as if he died. And again, Paul is not condoning divorce. He rather knows the sad consequences of sin. And inspired of the Spirit, instructing the early church and the Lord's people from that point onwards, a people being called out of all peoples and tribes and nations of the world to Christ, part of his body, Paul says that there are going to be times when unbelievers will not want to stay with a believer. They will despise that believer for their faith in Christ and they will seek a divorce. If that happens, 
The believer is not in bondage and the Lord knows. And so we see the way in which the scriptures lay these things out. Now, just before we draw all these things together and close, we also need to see that God regulates remarriage. Just a, a brief word on remarriage. The Bible says that if your spouse has died, then it is permissible to remarry. Romans 7 verse 3, So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. That's also taught in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Timothy 5, where widows are permitted to remarry. But outside of adultery and abandonment, divorce and remarriage leads to adultery. Now, there are those Bible scholars and Bible believers and men who are far more uh, there than I am, and they say that remarriage is never permissible in any circumstance. But I would see really that Scripture implies that remarriage is permissible only where there has been biblical grounds for divorce, and then only for the offended spouse. So again, 1 Corinthians 7 Verses 27 28, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed? That's speaking of legitimate divorce according to Scripture. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And so that would suggest that there is permission for a marriage where divorce is on biblical grounds. And simply that means the non-adulterous spouse when there has been adultery and the believing spouse when there has been abandonment. Outside of that or being a widow, remarriage is not permitted. Friends, how do we draw something like this together? God defines marriage. He created marriage as a wonderful thing. God hates divorce. But he regulates divorce because of the reality and the impact of sin. And it is clear that whenever we come to a subject like this, it, it can bring old wounds, maybe new wounds, to the surface. And scripture can be hard to hear when it does not say what we want it to say. But there is a reason why God is so serious about the marriage covenant and divorce and remarriage. It is because he is so serious about his marriage covenant with his people. Because marriage pictures that stunning relationship between Christ and his church. And the fact that the Bible limits divorce to these things will instantly draw accusations that the biblical teaching is narrow, that it's impractical, and all those things. But God is wise. And he's sovereign. And the challenges that we face today have not caught him by surprise. I think sometimes we feel that. Oh, well, these things were laid down, you know, and, and they didn't see what was coming and they didn't see the immorality that was happening in our day. And, but God knew. He knows all things. They haven't caught him by surprise. And even though there are many challenges, we're not left to face them alone. You also have the importance of the local church as a means of supporting one another and sharing life together and following Christ. And he's given us the church with its discipline, its restoration to be the means when we're joined to it to walk together through the pain and the hurt and marital challenges together. And we live in an imperfect, sinful world. The brokenness is seen all around us. And believers are not immune from that. 
And if you're a believer here this morning and you have endured divorce, you need to know that you're still part of the bride of Christ. And he is always faithful and he's ready to forgive. Even if you've known the pain of a marriage being broken, the Lord's covenant with you is still intact. And God picks you up daily where you are and he sustains you. He will never be unfaithful to you or abandon you. Jesus never forsakes his bride. And that's the glory of the gospel. He saves, he keeps. Maybe you're here this morning and you just feel as though you come with a a whole raft of problems in this area. But you need to know it's not the unforgivable sin. God is always willing to begin with us where we are. That's the amazing thing about grace and the gospel of Christ. There is hope through the cross of Jesus. And as a church, friends, we need to be willing to meet with people where they are. And we must be faithful to the biblical standards. We must be. But we must also be compassionate and ready to come alongside those who have not followed them. You know, maybe we ask this question, what if you are here this morning and you've been divorced for biblical reasons and you're single? Well, you need to rest in the Lord. Give yourself to him and to his cause. And if he gives you continued singleness, then I pray that the Lord will enable you to be content in that and to rejoice that he's with you. And if that's not the case and you remarry, then I pray that by the power of the gospel, you'll display the love of Christ for his church in that remarriage. What about if you were saved after having been married and divorced? Well, you need to know that the blood of Christ covers it all. And there may well be many things that happened prior to your conversion, but the blood of Christ has dealt with that. But now you're a believer. Paul says, live in the light of the teaching of the Scriptures, live in the light of the Gospel. You're a new creature in Christ. Your past is dealt with at Calvary. You are made clean, and God will give you the grace to live in the situation that you are now in to His glory. And so magnify Christ in your circumstances, in the marriage that God has given you by his power. What if you're a believer here this morning and you're going through difficulties in your marriage? Do you know the greatest healing source in a marriage is the grace of God? You think on how the Lord is patient and faithful toward us despite all our sins and our flaws. And it's only as we look to Christ, it's only as we know more of our union with him, it is only as we know more of his love and his grace in our lives as he grows in us, so does our patience and our faithfulness grow. Which, by the way, are really important in a healthy, godly marriage. And think on how the Lord graciously forgives our failings and our sin. You know, it is only when we come to that fountain of mercy again that we are refreshed and have mercy for others. You know, some days our partner's errors are more apparent to us. You know, I think my errors come into view every day for Jenna. She has to endure a lot, probably more than many of you realize. But we have to bring God's grace back into view. 
And as believers, we are the bride of Christ. At this point, we're not the perfect bride for him. But he tells us, I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. God is faithful to us. And he will bring us through. We will be made the bride that he wants us to be. And that faithfulness should inspire us in our marriages. As one explains, marriage is a parable of covenant faithfulness, not covenant bliss. Your faithfulness to your vows is pleasing to the Lord, no matter how much frustration you might carry or how much sadness is in your heart. By this covenant keeping, your marriage is bearing witness to the greater truth of Christ in his church as a covenant keeping Christ and church. What a wonderful responsibility. Sin, friends, has ruined. That's true in terms of marriage and the perfection of God's order and design has been twisted, manipulated, exploited. And that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need the Savior. Many of you here this morning may be affected by broken marriages, broken homes, unfaithfulness, troubles, the effect of sin. Some of you may have even been the cause of those things. But forgiveness and comfort and hope and help are found in the one who is answering this question. In the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his perfect life, Through his death on the cross, Christ has made the way in which we can be changed, we can be forgiven, and we can be given grace to live for God's glory in the circumstances in which he has placed us. Maybe you've got wounds that need healing. Maybe there is sin that needs forgiving, but Christ can deal with you. And friends, we need him. We need him. We need him every hour. That's what we're going to sing in a few moments. We need him. Now, the Lord goes on to deal with singleness next. We're going to look at that next time. But let's really pray that God would uphold those in marriages, that we would seek to live according to his word, and that he would be glorified. And we need his help. And we pray that in these days where there is so much pressure, that we would know that help and that we would be a faithful people to his word and in the situation that he has placed us, and all to his glory. Amen.